Hey-ho! Hey-ho, Winnipeg! Hey-ho! Hey-ho! Oh, come on, it is Festival de Voyageurs! Hey-ho! Hey-ho! Oh, you know, this following Jesus, it is one long portage. Can I ask you something? I know there are many Anglos here in Winnipeg, but why do you call that street Portage? Oh, it hurts my ears. Life is one long portage. When you follow Jesus, my friends, it is one long portage. It is worth it, but it is a long, long journey. Okay, let's kill the bad French accent, shall we? and lose the hat. This, incidentally, is an awesome hat for Winnipeg. It is, I can't tell you how that saved various appendages from freezing. And I'm also going to lose the canoe pack as well. When Luann and I were first married, uh, we went on a, a, a couple of seven-day canoe trips. And the first time we went, we were raw rookies. And we really didn't know what we were doing. Um, and uh, so we needed kind of a, an explanation uh, and some coaching, which is what we got from our good friends, Mark and Jane. And I was impressed and surprised at the amount of planning and intentionality. But when you think about it, if you take all of your belongings, everything you need for a week, tent, sleeping bag, something to sleep on, um, food, all that stuff, and you've got to put it in one of these and carry your own transportation for a week, it really, you don't just casually pick up and go. It, it requires a lot of planning and intentionality. And just as important as what you take is what you leave behind. Now, we had a great time on our first seven-day canoe trip, even though it rained five days out of the seven we still had a great time, and it was quite a memorable experience. And on our way out of Algonquin Park with our friends, who were leaving the last day, uh, for some reason all I could think about was a plate of french fries. Anyway, we're, we're leaving, we're walking out, we encounter all these people coming in. We met them on a portage. It was fascinating what they were carrying. They were carrying can their canoes, not upside down, but kind of like this, and some of them were, had filled their canoes full of stuff and literally dragging them. You could see the paint scrapes all the way along the path. They're just basically just dragging their canoes with lawn chairs and a guitar and a couple of cases of beer. And I'm thinking, you guys didn't get the memo, did you? I hope you're not going far. They were just, they weren't well prepared for the trip. Following Jesus is... A journey. It's a journey of a lifetime. And to follow him, we need to learn how to travel light and leave stuff behind that drags us down. In the book of Hebrews, uh, it says, describes that we're involved in a great race. It's a marathon. And since we're involved in this great marathon of faith following Jesus, let us lay aside anything that hinders us or holds us back, any unnecessary stuff. 
You don't set out to run a marathon with your shoelaces undone or tied together. It's just silly, right? So following Jesus takes a lot of intentionality and discipline. Now, it's not about working. We'll get to this in a minute. It's not about working to get ourselves into God's good books or earning brownie points with Him. You should know that by now if you've listened to anything I've said since I've been here. It's not about earning brownie points with God, but it's about intentionality and focus and saying, yes, today I will follow Jesus. The scripture that was read um, this morning goes like this. If any of you want to be my followers, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross. What's that next word? Couldn't I do it just once a week or maybe once a month? Once a week would be great because then we could do it on Sunday morning. Check it off our list and saying, this is great. Uh, maybe the Rick Hill version of this verse would read, if any of you wants to be my followers, you must turn from your kind of selfish ways or sort of, well, let's leave that part out. I don't like the selfishness. Take up your cross on Sunday morning or no, show up regularly Sunday morning at church and pretend that you follow me. Oh, that's kind of the poser version of the verse, isn't it? If any of you wants to be my follower, you must turn from your selfish ways, take up your cross daily, and follow me. Now, this imagery of taking up the cross must have impacted the original audience something like a kick to the stomach. Because, I mean, take up your cross, that thing there, it's not just a, a, some kind of religious decoration. Back in the first century A.D., it was a symbol of shame and humiliation. It means that uh, uh, it was a form of ugliest form of public execution anyone to ever devise in human history. And it means only the worst criminals would be seen carrying a cross, dragging it down the street. Jesus goes on to say, if you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. Now, it might be just me, but this seems awfully counterintuitive, don't you think? How can you, if you hang on to your life, you'll lose it, but if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That does not compute. It does not seem to make sense. North Americans especially are really good at trying to run their own lives. Actually, that's, it's not just North Americans. With our affluence society, it's, it's everybody. Every human being wants to run their own life. But when we hang on to our own life, oh my, we tend to make a hash of it, don't we? Anybody who's got a shred of honesty here this morning will admit we tend to make a hash of our own life if left to our own devices. And ultimately, we lose it in the long run. But Jesus says, if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. That's the irony of following Jesus. It doesn't seem to make sense. But if we say, okay, Jesus, you be the boss, you drive, ultimately, we save our life. Or to be more accurate, he saves us. He saves us from ourselves. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world, but are yourself lost or destroyed? There used to be um, a uh, bumper sticker in the 1980s 
that said, he who dies with the most toys wins. Does anybody remember that? What a goofy saying. He who dies with the most toys wins. Well, guess what? You still die. And if you live your life with that kind of attitude, frankly, you're a loser. How pathetic. How many funerals have I gone to? It's really dis- it really distresses me to go to a funeral and you know that person has invested their life pretty much in pursuing the wrong things. It's really sad. It's really depressing. Not all funerals have to be really sad events. We mourn people that we lose. But we know for those folks who have invested, who follow Jesus, who've given up their lives to follow Jesus, we know in the long run they win. But it's so sad, so disheartening, especially if you're at the one, the person officiating at the funeral, to say, oh, wow, I wonder how this person invested their life. Now, I'm not the judge, which is good. And you're not the judge either, which is probably even better for all of us. But in the long run of things, when God evaluates our life, he's going to see how do we invest our life. Did we give up our life to follow Jesus or did we try to hang on to it and try to keep control of it? The few weeks before Easter are called Lent. And in a lot of the Christian church, people take these 40-some days before Easter to reflect on what it means to follow Jesus, stuff they need to set aside, stuff they need to pick up for the journey. Now, I've got a confession to make. I didn't grow up with Lent. That wasn't the tradition that I grew up in. It was, we kind of labeled it, oh, it's a Catholic thing. I'm not picking on Catholics here this morning, but it was kind of one of those Catholic things. Like my cafeteria, my high school cafeteria would always serve fish on Friday. I don't know why, I just they just did. But that was to accommodate the population in our, in our town. Okay, whatever. But I didn't think that much of Lent. The only thing we did was celebrate Pancake Tuesday. I had no, why, I had no idea why we had pancakes on that Tuesday, but I love pancakes and homemade maple syrup, so it was a real highlight. But that's the only thing I was familiar with with Lent. But later on, following Jesus, I realized that a much wider spectrum of the church observes Lent in some way. And it's a good idea. It's optional. You don't have to do it, okay? But it's a good idea sometimes to take stock of our life and say, hey, there's kind of a rhythm in the year. This might be a good time of year to think about following Jesus intentionally, especially leading up to Easter. Now, some evangelical churches get around this by having 40 days of something. 40 days of purpose, 40 days of community, 40 days of the word, 40 days, and that's good. Rick Warren kind of spearheaded that, and I call it evangelical Lent. Now, Rick wouldn't call it that because that might get him in trouble with his constituency, but there is value in taking, uh, you know, a, a, a chunk of time in every year to think about, okay, let's be intentional about following Jesus. Maybe there are some good habits that I could develop and start doing, For this period of time, um, experts tell us that it takes at least 30 consecutive days to build a habit or practice into your life. So 40 days might be a good fit. So for the next few weeks, we're going to talk about some 
spiritual habits, spiritual disciplines, practices that we can integrate into our lives and make part of it so we make this lifelong portage following Jesus easier for us and more fruitful. Actually, it might not make it easier. I take that back. But it will make it more fruitful and in the long run, more joyful. Superficiality is the curse of our age. The desperate need today The desperate need today is not for a greater number of intelligent people or gifted people, but for deep people. Richard Foster has written uh, a number of books on spiritual disciplines. This is a quote from his first one, Celebration of Discipline. These spiritual disciplines or good spiritual habits that we build into our lives will deepen us, will help us to put down deep roots in life. Are there any gardeners here? If you've done any landscaping, it's the shallow, it's the plants with the shallow roots that are easy to get rid of, right? And you see this sometimes in a windstorm, how uh, especially a tree like a cedar tree or something will blow over, or on the edge of a lake, you see these trees, and you see the root system, and they're about, eh, not even a foot deep. But then you go to some, <laughs> some particular weeds. They're very irritating. They put down a taproot. It's about like this. And to try to get those suckers out, it's almost impossible, right? And some trees grow like that, too. They go down so deep. That's what gives them the stability when the storms of life come along. Spiritual practices, spiritual disciplines can help us put down roots deep into God so that when the storms of life come, and they inevitably will, I would be doing you a grave disservice this morning if I say, following Jesus is all sweetness and light and you'll trip trip through fields of wildflowers until we get to glory. Well, that's a load of hogwash. I don't know what TV preacher you've been listening to, but it's not that way. Following Jesus is a tough, lifelong portage. Sometimes the path is dry. Sometimes it's muddy. Sometimes you can't even see the doggone path. You're not even sure where it is. But Jesus goes with us. And to help us along the way, we need to build into our lives some of these deep spiritual practices. Here's a prayer I came across this week. It's on Steve Bell's blog, so I can't take credit from it. But it's authored by a fellow I've never heard of, St. Ephraim the Syrian. Aren't you glad there are Christians in Syria? Still amazing. And here's this prayer. We're gonna, I'm going to go over it, but it's a good prayer for Lent, this time of focusing our hearts on what God wants us to put on and what he wants us to take off. O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, faint-heartedness, lust of power, and idle talk. But rather, but give rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own errors and not to judge my brother. Thou art blessed unto the age of ages. Now, because this prayer was written in the 4th century AD, we might want to unpack some of the quaint language here a little bit. Lord and master of my life. I get that part. Take from me the spirit of sloth. This isn't just the spirit of laziness that we connect with sloth, but it's kind of the this, this spirit of cynicism. And let me explain why. I don't know if you know any cynics or if you're a cynic yourself. Cynicism, I think, is the last refuge of the lazy mind. 
It's so easy to be cynical about everything in life. Cynical about yourself, cynical about the church, cynical about society. Everything is going to hell in a handbasket. And people who have been constantly disappointed by life and they don't have any inflow of any positive input into their life, all of a sudden their soul kind of shrinks and dies. We just get hard and tough and cynical. Just like I've, I've mentioned it before, I think in a recent communion service, we can be like a, a tough, of, tough old meat. It's just you chew it and chew it and chew it, almost like shoe leather. And we can get tough and hard like that. But God advice is to throw off that spirit of sloth, that, that lazy thinking that only reverts to the negative. Say, get rid of the cynicism in your life. Get rid of this hopeless feeling that life's not going to get better. Take from me a spirit of sloth and faint-heartedness. Faint-heartedness is not just cowardice, but faint-heartedness is this sense that, well, I call it the spirit of Eeyore. Are you familiar with Eeyore from Winnie the Pooh? He's so, he's so endearing. He's so negative, he's almost endearing, you know? He's like, well, he's almost got this little private rain cloud over him. And I know some folks like that. They go walk around, they almost have their, they, they have their own weather system over them. They're so downcast, and yeah, well, it's, I know it's sunny out there, but it's going to rain sometime, and everything's kind of bad, and well, I guess I could be happy if I had to, but I don't really want to be happy, because if I was happy, I'd have to give up my unhappiness. And, and it's easier to blame someone for my unhappiness than actually be happy. Now, Hopefully, the Lord will deliver us of a spirit of Eeyore over Lent, okay? But to give over this. And I'm not saying don't be fake or phony, but really, ultimately, if God is God and if he is in charge of the universe, then he is walking with us and his presence can sustain us and carry us through hard times. There's no place for faint-heartedness in the Christian. After we get rid of sloth and faint-heartedness, then we've got to deal with lust of power. And that's control issues. We want to be in control. We want to be the boss. And that's why Jesus says, if you're going to come and follow me, you've got to die to yourself. You've got to die. You've got to pick up your cross every day. Oh, good. Not just once a week, but every day. And then idle talk. Just St. Ephraim wasn't familiar with Facebook, but I think he was talking about just the, some of the junk that goes on and Facebook and, and bullying and, and just the way we... Un, oh, what's the best way of saying it? We're not careful with the words we use and we hurt people when we talk about idle talk and jokes that go beyond the edge of what's appropriate and just repeating garbage that we've seen and heard. There's no place for that. So Lord, he's saying, this is in my life, this sloth and faint-heartedness, lust of power, idle talk, get, help me get rid of this. Help me, give me the spirit of chastity. Now he's not just talking about spiritual purity, but the idea of looking at life from a wholesome positive point of view that God is in everything 
There's value in everything, and that changes my perspective on life, okay? A healthy attitude towards life. Humility. Oh, that's a tough one. How many people have prayed for a spirit of humility this week? <laughs> I'm kind of, that's kind of a scary thing to pray for, right? It's kind of like praying for patience. We joke about, oh, you pray for patience, watch out. Be careful what you ask for. But praying for a spirit of humility, which is basically putting other people first, that's tough. That's challenging. I know that God gives grace to the humble. I know he does. But why can't the other people be humble this time? Why do I have to be humble all the time, right? Can't somebody else take a turn? The whole idea, I'm worried about someone else taking a turn to be humble, indicates my need for humility, right? It does. So rather worrying about those people, those other people, God needs to change my heart and my attitude. Patience, we talked about the danger of praying for patience, but yes, let's pray for patience because that gives us a long-term exp- uh, the long-term perspective. If you're going to portage with Jesus, you need patience. We need patience. We need endurance. We need the long-term picture. And finally, give me the spirit of love because we're not doing this journey alone. We're doing this journey together. If you're following Jesus today, we are all in this together. And God needs to give us a spirit of love for each other or else we just ain't going to make it. We just ain't going to make it. Now some of you might think, Rick, you've been preaching from a 4th century prayer today. That's a little odd. Where's the Bible? These are all biblical concepts though from St. Ephraim. And again, the fact that St. Ephraim was a Syrian speaks to me about how we need to pray for that country this morning. It's in such chaos, such disarray. Can you imagine trying to follow Jesus in a context like that? It's bad enough in Canada where really all we have to complain about is the bitter cold. And you are the tough, crazy people because you came to church today. So good on you. We're obviously following Jesus together. Just a point about Lent. We can get all legalistic about Lent and giving up stuff. It's good to go without something just to see, hey, do I really need this? Um, And often during periods of Lent, I've chosen to go without certain things that I think I'm totally dependent on. And then I realize, oh, maybe that good practice, not innocent, relatively innocent practice, maybe I don't need it as much as I think. So one of the things I've given up for the next few weeks is reading and watching sports, which for some of you think, meh, what's the big deal? And others of you, my brothers in the faith, you know, that's kind of like slitting your wrists, especially as the Jets go in the playoff run. But I just have to leave them to the Lord, you know. Anyway, something as simple as that, all of a sudden it makes space in your life. So Lent isn't about adding extra things to do. It's about making space in your life to build in good habits and good, good practices to help us in our journey with Jesus.
Here's a quote from another church leader from the 4th century A.D., John Chrysostom. He said, No act of virtue can be great if it's not followed by advantage for others. So no matter how much time you spend fasting, no matter how much you sleep on a hard floor or, and eat ashes and sigh continually, had a sense of humor, if you do no good to others, you do nothing great. Basically, he's saying, the spin-off from whatever spiritual disciplines we do should benefit others, ideally. It's not about us earning brownie points from God or getting some sense of deep, self-righteous satisfaction. There, I fasted from sports for the whole of Lent. Aren't I holy? No. It's not about necessarily giving up chocolate or alcohol or carbohydrates or screens, as one young woman uh, did a few years ago that I know. She just gave up screens for Lent, which is a good practice. That's a good discipline. It's really challenging in this society. That's what she felt God was telling her to do. But not out of a sense of legalism or earning brownie points with God, just kind of proving to yourself, okay, I could probably live without this. And what it does, it frees up more space. It lightens my load on the journey so I can make space for stuff that I really, really need, right? If I had set out on this one-week-long canoe trip, with a case of Coke in my backpack. That would be really stupid. Really. It's heavy. Yes, your pack gets lighter as you go along, but what am I going to do with all the cans? You know, what am I going to do with all the stuff? It would just, it's just not the right thing to take on a canoe trip, right? It just doesn't make sense. So... In the same way, we've got to be intentional about the stuff we take on our journey with Jesus. Again, this whole idea of, of building spiritual practices into our life is not, I'm not turning it into a commandment or an obligation, but it's, it's an invitation, okay? It's an invitation for us to deepen our walk with God. And over the next several weeks we're going to be talking specifically about how to build some good practices into our lives. And maybe we're always already doing some of those things. We can learn from each other. And the next few Sundays will be almost a bit more like a workshop, so to speak, in spiritual disciplines, learning. How do we build things like um, prayer and hospitality, generosity, um, living in God's word? How do we absorb those things into our lives? What about in our crazy society? How do we build simplicity into our lives? Simplicity sounds like this vague, ethereal concept that somebody in Wolseley or some granola eater would eat, you know, pursue, that kind of thing. But for the rest of us, simplicity? Forget it. My life's so complex and so full I don't have space to think about com- Simplicity. Well, that's one of the things we're going to be looking at. Because I don't think God intends us to live frazzled, burnt-out lives. And again, there's not a whole lot of wildflowers on the journey, okay? So don't expect that. But I think He wants us to follow Him and not get distracted by the bright and shiny things and get off the path and get distracted and get stuck. He wants us to follow Him. And in fact... 
Holy Spirit is with us on this journey as we develop these spiritual disciplines. They'll help us to grow and really experience the life that God is calling us to. And it's going to help us to die to ourselves daily. Oh, good, I can hardly wait. But seriously, there you don't understand this seemingly perverse, ironic call of Jesus, what it really means. It's such a relief in the long run, in the long run, to finally give up and say, okay, Jesus, you be the boss of me again today. And we'll try it again tomorrow. And tomorrow we'll have to say, okay, Jesus, you be the boss of me again today. And it gets to be a habit, a good habit, and a lifestyle. And God changes us from the inside out. I'm going to invite you to pray this prayer with me as we uh, close the service. Okay? O Lord and Master of my life, take from me the spirit of sloth, faint-heartedness, lust of power, and idle talk. But give rather the spirit of chastity, humility, patience, and love to thy servant. Yea, O Lord and King, grant me to see my own errors and not to judge my brother. Thou art blessed unto the ages of ages. Amen. Father, we thank you for St. Ephraim and that you prompted him to write down this prayer. Still true for us today. Father, we think of our brothers and sisters who are trying to follow Jesus in Syria, in that chaotic, dangerous situation. Will you grant them grace and peace and protection today and provide for their needs? Show us as global Christians how we can help people in that situation. Especially in this time of Lent. Lord, we don't want to copy what other churches do, but we do want to build good spiritual disciplines into our lives. So as we go on this journey for the next few weeks, I pray that you'll help us to be intentional about what we're throwing out and intentional what we're adding to our lives. We're looking forward to this. In Jesus' name, amen.